Amen. Hey, I want to say welcome um, really quick uh, before we dive in. My name is Matt, and I am uh, elder here at Calvary, um, though hopefully actually kind of by the end of the day, um, it will be absolutely true that uh, I will be one of the elders we have here at Calvary. One of the important business things we are doing today at our meeting is going to be voting on making informally uh, making Scott an elder here at the church, which seems kind of funny to many of you um, because you probably already think he is. Um, and the reality is, is that's on purpose. Um, we do not make someone an elder until they have been so at our church. And so uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about our meeting today is that, um, and hopefully that will go well, um, or it'll be a very weird day. Um, also just want to say, we would really would love for you to come to our meeting. You may not be a member, and that's perfectly fine. This may be your first Sunday here, and that's a, a great place to come. Um, I... I pride our church on having some of the best members meetings that I've ever been to. Some of us have been to churches where they have been painful and long and fights and those things. Um, we've been doing this for six years now, and we have never had one of those. I hope it doesn't start today. Um, and don't make me a liar today. But I just want to say it, it's a great opportunity to come celebrate, to come hear what's going on. And if you are someone for whom this is your church, you have made this your church, you know this is your church, we would love to talk to you about membership. Um, and we are going to have a membership class um, upcoming. We haven't scheduled it yet, but I just want to put that out there um, because we believe that membership is important in church, that you make a commitment to a, a body of believers that you're going to build up, encourage, support. Um, and, and we as the, the elders want to have that between us as well. Um, so that we know who you are, we know uh, what you're doing, we know that you're a part of us, um, and, and so we can do that. All of that is completely aside to the sermon today. I just needed to say and wanted to say a bunch of things. Um, I want to share with you, um, as we get into our sermon today, we are starting a new, well, we're actually returning to a series. Um, the six years that we have been here, that I've been here at Calvary, that we've started summers, has meant uh, 10 weeks in the Psalms for us. Um, we have, we're in our sixth year, so we're in Psalm 61 today. And this has been a really awesome way to just kind of do the summer and, and from whatever else we were doing. Um, and so the Psalms are, are just a great book. And I know a lot of us have read them, a lot of us spend some time in them. But I kind of wanted to introduce us into this time because it is uh, such a a new thing for some of us. Um, I have been reading this book called Deeper. Um, a few of you I know have also been reading it. Um, and if you are someone who enjoyed the book Gentle and Lowly, um, it's a book we've given out. I think last year, summer's uh, Sunday school was out of that book. Um, this, is, this is actually kind of number two. It, it comes right after that. Um, and I, I have actually liked it more. Um, but I wanted to just read from this. This is not something I usually do as we introduce the Psalms. I want us to be in the right frame of mind as we come to Psalm 61. And so here is what, um, first, uh, it's Dane Ortland writes, and then he's going to be quoting John Calvin in the middle. He says this, I propose to you as you grow in Christ that you form the vital habit of making the book of Psalms your lifelong companion. Befriend the Psalms deeply. Never go too long without making them your own prayers. 
they give voice, sacred voice, to every circumstance, every emotion, every distress we walk through in this fallen wilderness of a world. More precisely, the Psalms train our hearts in a gospel direction. They bring us to the great, glorious, basic truth we love and confess, most centrally the cross of Christ, which forgives us and in our own pattern for life. John Calvin wrote, Although the Psalms are replete with all the precepts which serve to frame our life to every part of holiness, piety, and righteousness, yet they will principally teach and train us to bear the cross. And the bearing of the cross is a genuine proof of our obedience, since by doing this, we renounce the guidance of our own affections and submit ourselves entirely to God, leaving him to govern us and to dispose of our life according to his will, so that the afflictions which are the bitterest and most severe to our nature become sweet to us because they proceed from him. In one word, not only will we find here general commendations of the goodness of God, which may teach people to repose themselves in him alone, but we will also find that the free remission of sins, which alone reconciles God toward us and procures for us settled peace with him, is so set forth and magnified as that here there is nothing wanting which relates to the knowledge of eternal salvation. Now, Dane Ortland then goes on to, to say this, and this is the last paragraph. He says, as you read the Psalms unhurriedly, meditatively, allowing them to give voice to your own heart's distresses, you will find yourself thinking, these poets know me. In fact, they know me better than I know myself. They see my sin more clearly than I do, and they see the surprising abundance of God's redemption more clearly than I do. In short, they take me deeper and thus foster my growth in Christ. We have a conviction here at Calvary, and I, I hope you do too, as a Christian, and that is that all of Scripture points forward into Jesus. All of it. One of the resurrection appearances that we, we, we read about often in the book of Luke is the walk to Emmaus, in which Jesus kind of blinds the eyes of a couple of his disciples who are walking um, on the road after, on the day of the resurrection. And he meets up with them and they don't recognize him. And, and he spends the entire walk walking through from Moses all the way through to the prophets, which is to say the Old Testament, showing how the Christ had to suffer and die. And it's only at the, the reaching of their destination that he reveals who he is to them and they see him as the one who has been revealed all the way through the Old Testament. We believe the same to be true of the Psalms, and so when we go to them, we know that so often the Psalms, too, are pointing forward to Jesus. But we also believe that the Psalms are a gift to us, Christians, that we might learn to pray and know what to pray, and when we are absent words to pray, which, I don't know about you, but happens to me so often, we might find the words that others have written guiding us into prayer. Whether that be a single verse or a stanza or an entire paragraph or an entire psalm or an entire section of psalms, they can guide us in our prayers. I have found the psalms to be, to be just revealing of my own heart, revealing of who God is to my heart, and in that have found great comfort over the years in praying the psalms. I will tell you one thing, though. Psalms are difficult to preach. It's a challenge we come to every summer. 
because they're not letters and they're not narrative and, and they're poetic, so they, they do things with language that sometimes makes us uncomfortable. But they are, in many ways, because they are psalms meant to be pictured in our minds, they are meant to, to use feeling and thought to help convey the deep truths that they are conveying. And so as we read the psalms, we should be picturing, we should be thinking, we should be, we should be letting our imaginations move. With all of that said, I'd like to read for us Psalm 61. This is a psalm of David, King David. He wrote this. Uh, not exactly uh, sure when, although there's a few, few moments in his life when it makes a lot of sense for this psalm to have been written. We'll mention that in just a minute. But hear the words from Psalm 61. Hear David's prayer. May it be your prayer today as well. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day by day, or day after day. Church, we come to this psalm, and, and it begins to bring us into the moment of this psalm. Now, like I said, we don't know when, when David wrote this. Some of the psalms actually tell you this was during this and so such endeavor. This is what, through this uh, encounter that David had or when he was fleeing from Saul. Um, some of them speak and they tell us when they were written. This one is, is left generically. I actually really like when they do. Because there's a lot of times when it tells me what David's situation was and I just read it I'm like, that is not my situation at all. I mean, number one, I am not a king. I have no idea what it means to be a king. I may be the pastor of a church, but this isn't my church. It's God's, right? I, I, I may be in leadership in a lot of roles in my life, but I have no idea what it means to be a king. I have no idea what it means to have my life sought after for people to kill me. But David did. In this psalm, we don't know why. We don't know exactly what is going on, and that is a gift to us sometimes. It means that as we get into the words, we can broadly open them up to wherever we might be as they might apply to us. And, and we open that up, we begin to see exactly where David is. And I don't mean his location, I mean where his heart condition is. These first words that he says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. Right, that should start telling us that nothing good is going on right now. David is in trouble, he's scared, he's alone, and he doesn't know that God is listening. And I know that every one of us can identify with that in one way or another. At one point, even if you are a solid believer, even if you have been a solid believer for years and years and years, you know there are those moments where you cry out to God and you say, God, are you even listening? Do you even hear me? David is in just such a place. We can identify him in that, with that. Moving on to verse 2, he says, From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Now, almost guaranteed, 
David is not physically at the ends of the earth. Number one, if you want to take that super literally, there is no ends to the earth. The earth just keeps going if you just keep going. Now that phrase might mean that he's at the farthest corner of landmass that he can get to, but that also doesn't make a lot of sense because we have no knowledge that David ever made it, ever left the region of Israel in, in that part of the Middle East. More so where I think we should land in this, as this is when poetic language comes in, is that he is at the end. Maybe he's alone somewhere. Maybe he's lost in the wilderness. Maybe he's being chased. We don't know. Here he is at the end of his ability, the end of his strength, the end of his patience. He is in a lonely place, a scary place. And this is another place that we can identify with David. We may be, we may have found ourselves far from home with no one around. We may have found ourselves being pursued. We may find ourselves thinking that nobody else in the world could possibly know what we're going through right now. And that actually might be true. David knew what it was to be at the end. Where he had run out where his hope had been drained and is exhausted and is gone. Many of us know this place too. There was one writer who described this location um, in terms of spiritual geography. I love that term, just the picture of that. Right? He's, you can't find him on a map. But if you had a map of the heart and emotions and soul, he is the farthest spot away from the center of joy. And there are seasons, church, that we feel close to God. There are seasons where we feel far off. And if we pulled out a map of our life, a spiritual geography, most of us could fairly accurately, even just today, map where we are. We could point our finger to this valley, the valley of despair, or to the mountain of joy, right? To the, 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 the plateau of, of just contentment. Or wherever it is that we may find ourselves today. David is, is like falling off the map, though. Right? David's falling off the map. And so this psalm, we, we just get into it in the first verse, in, in two verses, and we realize that this psalm is for every one of us who is at our end, or who has been, or who, Lord, God forbid, tomorrow or the next day we'll find ourselves at the end. The good news for you today is that you can pray this prayer if you get there tomorrow or the next day because you'll be aware of it. You'll know where it is. This prayer, this psalm is for the man who just lost custody of his kids because of his anger. It's for the woman who just lost her job and the only means of income to support her and her kids. It's for the teenage girl who made some terrible choices and does not see any options of hope or a future. It's for the one stuck in lifeless religion holding on to vain hope that he or she can get himself into heaven on their own good merits. Which, if you've been paying attention here at Calvary for any amount of time, you know, is impossible. It's for the ones who have bought the worlds and the devil's lies, that that is all there is in this life and in the next, that there is nothing more important than self. Friends, I look at a world raging in fear and hopelessness and despair. 
I'm just going to pause on that for a sec because I think we all see the same world. My heart hurts right now as I look upon the world, as I look at my family, my extended family, as I look at people that I've been friends with for years and years in college and high school, and I see a world that does not have hope. And, and here, this week, this has become especially true. This week, I'm not sure I've ever seen a greater example of the differences in this world between looking at a hope, at life, and looking at just fear and despair. This week, many of us Christians got to celebrate for the symbolic chance of life and hope that's presented. For some, it's been this long-answered prayer of undoing a great evil that has hung over our nation for 50 years. Okay? But here's the trouble. There are those that we love, there are those that may even be us, who have the exact opposite reaction. One filled with fear and dread and anger. And the trouble is none of us know how to be joyful while others that we love and care about are not. And none of us know how to let people be and celebrate where they need to be while others are in despair. Now this is not what we're talking about today. Here at Calvary we have done our best to, to find balance and a focus on the gospel and, and landing some of these issues in conversations that happen a, a, apart from this. But we know... and. I, it, it, it can't be avoided, it, it's unavoidable that we have to deal with this stuff. And the reason we have to deal with this stuff is because the world is utterly falling apart in anger and violence and hatred. Some of us have felt this cruelly from people that we've loved over the last month. So again, this isn't what we're talking about today, but here's the reality. I know that some of us are feeling some of this exact thing that David is falling off the spiritual map, unaware and unable to find the center. The fear that I have is that for most of us in this room right now, we can confidently continue the prayer that we read here. The struggle that I feel and the reason my heart is so heavy when I think about the world is that I know a whole lot of people who this is the last bit of this prayer they can pray. Because they're stuck. The world is stuck. And so the world can pray, God, are you hearing me? God, are you listening? And they can pray that from... They are praying from the ends of the earth, from the end of it all, and they can pray from this place of a heart being faint. And that's the end of their prayer. And my fear, even for some of us, may be that that's the end of our prayer. And they're going to miss, you will miss, the rest of this. Because i got to tell you, David does not stay in this place for very long in this psalm. His next words, man, have just been... been soaking into my heart all week and they've been just leading me out of out of 
out of that place and just into hope. And I pray that they would do the same for you. The second part of verse 2, and this is where we're going to land for the rest of our message. He says this. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I just got to tell you, those words may be some of the most profound words in Scripture. Right? He recognizes that he's falling off the spiritual map. He recognizes that he's right on the edge. And he says this, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, first of all, he knows he can't get there himself. He says, lead me. And I got to tell you, as one of God's sheep, one of the words that I am constantly saying to the Lord is lead me. Lead me in prayer, lead me in thought, lead me the right scriptures, lead me as a pastor to the sheep in our church that are hurting and broken that need to be loved and cared for this week. Lead me. Every one of us, church, this should be our cry, that God would be the one who leads us and nothing else. That we would not be led by political party, that we would not be led by, by websites or by news agencies, that we would not be led by anything but by Christ. Because all those things are not leading us to the center of the map of joy and life. All of those things, they are leading us to some other pit of destruction. So David, in the midst of his pain, when his heart is weakest, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I think about this rock, and then I look at this psalm, and I, and I see some things we need to see here. Verse 3 what is this rock? First of all, in verse 3, it is a refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Now, if you and I had waged war with our lives the way that David had, if you or I had fled from enemies physically, literally, the way that David had, this metaphor would mean far more to us. The number of times that David had to find a safe place, physical place to be, so that his enemies did not just kill him, is astounding. I've been, been reading through First and Second Samuel in my devotions for about the last six, eight weeks. Man, David is pursued constantly. His friends, his family, his enemies, certainly, coming against him. And, and he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, the place of protection, a refuge, and a strong tower. And church, you need to know that no matter where you are in that spiritual map, there is a spiritual tower, there is a place of protection within reach. Verse 4, the next thing he says about this rock, this higher rock. I love this. He says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, right? He's still talking about the rock here, right? He's, he wants to be led to the rock, this place of refuge and shelter. And then he says, look, let me dwell in your tent forever. Now, this is powerful. Because what he's literally saying to God is, let me dwell in your dwelling. Let me dwell in your dwelling with you as you dwell with us. When he's talking about the tent, he's talking about the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. He wanted to build it, but he wasn't allowed to. His son would do that. The tabernacle was the place that God had chosen from the time of Exodus to dwell as a symbol and a sign to dwell with his people. 
David says, let me dwell with you. Now this, this is beautiful. This is really beautiful. Some of us have this view that the God of the Old Testament is a terrible, hard, cruel being. But David, who maybe knew God best in all of it, says, let me live in your house. I got to tell you, if God was cruel, I would not want to live in his house. If he was terrible, I would not want to live in his house. If he was unpredictable, I would not want to live in his house. But David, who knows God so well, says, God, I want to dwell in your dwelling with you as you dwell with your people. Then he says, continuing that same vein, he says, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And this is one of those beautiful poetic images and in my mind, there's, there's this old story about a forest fire or a grass fire that rolls through, and I don't know what kind of bird it was, but the firefighters found this bird just sitting in the fire, and it had died, it had been burned kind of to a crisp. And they pick it up, and they realize that underneath it is all of its babies, and they've survived. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to take shelter under your wings. But I will tell you, as beautiful as that picture is, it is actually less than what the image that David is going for here. See, because at the center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the Covenant there was the cherubim with wings that stretched from corner to corner, David isn't just saying, hey, let me, let me come and live in your tent. He's saying, let me come and live in your Holy of Holies. Now, David wasn't even allowed in the Holy of Holies because he wasn't a priest. Only the priests were allowed in the Holy of Holies and only them at very specific and certain times throughout the year. And David is looking at God. He says, let me dwell in your house and let me take shelter, permanent, forever shelter, under the shadow of your wings, right in the center of the whole thing. And I just picture David picturing himself in this place, right? He is not there physically, but spiritually. He is being led. He is being found in the tabernacle, in the presence of God. And then he says this, verse 5. He says, For you, O God, have heard my vows, and you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now, just a few verses ago, he said, he said God, are you even hearing me? Are you even listening to me? Now, in verse 5, he's saying, God, you hear me. Something has happened in these first verses as he has poured out his heart, as he is, he is being led into the presence of God. And he realizes that God has heard him. God has heard everything he said. God has heard everything he said, including his vows, which are the promises that he's made to God to love him and serve him with his life. He hears him. God hears him. And I need to tell you this. You may be one of those people in one of those places where you're just saying, God, are you even listening to me? The answer is yes. He's listening to you, and he hears you. Okay? And he says in these next words, that you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now what this means is that, is that David is recognizing that God is giving him Everything that's been promised. 
to those who would fear God, those who would follow God, those who would make God their life. The heritage of those who fear your name is the blessing of God that he pours out in obedience and faithfulness. And David is finding all of this, even though his physical location has not changed. Even though he is still exactly where he was before. The next we see about this rock who is higher, verse 6 and 7. We see a place of promise, and I want us to hold on to this. David prays, and, and you think, man, David, you're, you're being a little selfish here. He says, prolong the life of the king. David is the king. <laughs> right? He's saying, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. All right, so you read that, you think, well, David, you're the king. This is a pretty selfish prayer. And the, the response to that is, no, it's not. Because something has happened now. David can't possibly be describing himself when he says that his years should endure to all generations. He can't possibly be speaking when he says, may he, his throne, be forever before God. David's a mortal man and he knows it. He's never had questions about that. He knows he's imperfect. He knows he's flawed. He knows that he is chosen by God, that he is placed in his throne and in the kingdom for a time when, such as this, when he is there. He knows that his days are numbered. See, something has happened to David as he's been brought into the throne room with God, as he's, he's settled in, he's begun to hear the promises of God and the faithfulness of the generations, is it's taken his own eyes off of him, and it's begun to put David's eyes on the not-yet-even-come Jesus. He says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. He says, may he be enthroned before, forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. What David has done here is settle in on the promises of God. Because when God appointed David, when he was anointed to be king, there was a promise made to him that it would be David's family that would be enthroned forever. It would be David's descendants who would be kings forever. Not David himself. And so David, even though he is falling off the spiritual map, wherever he may be, his eyes again on God and on being present with God, on hearing God, knowing that God has heard him, David again is there and he is full of hope and life and joy and he is looking forward to a future that he will never see. He is in a place of promise on this rock that is higher than him. And moving to verse 8, we see the result. And church, I want us to see this. I want us to live in this. He says, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David ends this prayer in a very different place than where he begins it. He began in a place of being lost, and at the end, he ends it in a place, I will just tell you, is full of life 
and joy. Full of life and joy. He says, so will I ever. As long as I can, I will sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Now this word vows is a really funny word in Hebrew. It literally means like 30 different things that are, have nothing to do with each other. It may be one of the hardest words in Scripture to have any idea what it actually means. But one of the other things that it means when you look at it is the word best. So David is talking about his vows. His vows are his duties as king, as the one who is meant to point his kingdom to God, to drive all the people there. And he says, look, as I do that, and I think we need to think about it this way, as we bring our best before God, that we would do so with joy, with celebration, with life. He has called us to be different. He has called us to be a people of hope and of life. We might say this, God, I will fill my days with worship. I will fill my days with joy, with songs towards you as I live in obedience to who you've called me to be. And I'm wondering if you are someone who can work through the trauma and the trouble and the problems of this world so that rather than, or even in your heavy heart, you can find joy in the one who upholds his promises, who leads us to this rock, that we might, as long as we live, worship him and live for him every day. Friends, David prays this prayer. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We know who that rock is. For every one of us Christians who's praying this prayer, it should not be a mystery who the rock is. Earlier, Scott read from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, when Jesus said, Build your house on the rock and not on the shifting sand. Church, we need to be a people who build ourselves on the rock. The rock that he leads us to. The rock of protection and refuge. Right? One of the things that I love about this rock is that it is described as being higher. The thing about a higher rock is that you can see it from a long way off. I think about David on the edge of the spiritual map, right? I think about David on the edge of his energy, his patience, his ability. And he says, lead me to the rock. And I just picture the spirit moving him and leading him and fixing his eyes on this mountain in the distance. You know, we get the, the neat joy out here in Lahana of being able to look to the west and once in a while, at least on clear, non-smoky days, we can see Pike's Peak, we can see the, 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 the twin mountains uh, over at Walsenburg, the west, west and east Spanish peak. And we get this view from a long way off. Now, a couple weeks ago, Mary and I got to, got to climb west Spanish peak when we were up at Camp Salvation. And it was a beast of a mountain. 
This week, as I've been doing my devotions, many of you guys know we live kind of west of town, and, and I've been out doing my prayer walking when I've been able to this week. Um, the first day I went out, and, and I couldn't see anything. It was too foggy. It was too cloudy. The smoke was coming up too much. And I thought, man, I, I can't see up that way. And then the next day I went out, and there they were in the distance. Now, while we were up on that mountain with Camp Salvation, we had some radios with us. And uh, there were, you know, camp radios so that we could kind of keep track of the group and we can figure out where we were. There was another group from camp that was doing a low hike right down by camp. And so they were down by camp and they had radios and they were talking and we were up on the mountain and we could hear them talking. We could hear that they had reached their destination. We could hear that they were heading back towards camp. Um, they at one point, since we could hear them, we checked in with them and let them know that we were doing okay. Um, and it, really, it was really kind of neat. The, the really, really cool thing is that we were like 15 miles away. Now, the range on these walkie-talkies is roughly a mile to two miles max in a neighborhood or on the plains. But up there, when one is high and one is low, they go to 30 miles. Church, we think about Jesus and he is up high. And we might be able to see that mountain. We might not be able to see that mountain. But here's what we know. From the top of that mountain, Jesus can see us. And he knows exactly where we are. And not only is he higher than us in that way, so he's visible, he's present. Not only that, but... In Hebrew, the metaphor carries through as it does in English that one who is higher is also better, is also preeminent. And so when we think about David here, right, he's saying, take me to the one who is higher. And we, church, we need to look and say, Jesus is higher. He's higher than us. He's higher than, than who we are. He's higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 tells us this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He is in every way higher than we are. He is in every way higher than we are. What I think happens to David in the course of this praying in this psalm, David knows that he needs to get his eyes off of his situation. He needs to get his eyes off of the wilderness he's in or the desert he's in or the, the chasm or the pit that he's in. And he needs to set his eyes on that rock. To the one who promises life. John 10.10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Church, I pray that we are a people who can get past verse 2 in our prayer life. I pray that we would be, a, be people who can, who can get to verse 3 and all the way through 8. And in our prayers, even out of being lost and broken, wherever we may find ourselves, that we may end with as much life and joy and hope as he has at verse 8. I also pray that we would be a people that would help those who are stuck in verses 1 and 2 move to being able to pray as God would lead them to the rock that is higher than they are. 
that in our brokenness for the lost in this world, for those who don't know, for those who are unaware of God's higher ways, that we would be a people that would lovingly come alongside them, come with them, as God leads them to the rock that is higher, as God leads them to Jesus, the one who is always higher. Would you pray with me? God, we just come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the psalms that lead us in prayer, Lord, that lead us out of our own stuckness and lead us into the hope and life that have come before us through the saints like David, through those whom you've called and, and made, God, made righteous through your Son. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people of hope and compassion and love. God, I pray that we would be a people that that know there is great work to be done. God, that as our hearts break for those that we love who don't know you, but who need to know you, Lord, I pray that you would work in power through us and in us, Lord, in our community, in our families, in our, with our friends, and even with our coworkers, with, with those we come in contact with, Lord, that they would not be stuck. Lord God, that they would be found in you. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name.